trying again to go to university. Uh, I, I wrote to 40 different medical schools with my results. Um, I didn't know, I went to lots of interviews, didn't know where I would go. Um, and eventually I had a, a, a phone call interview and uh, was offered a place. And by that stage, I was just so like, is this the right thing, God? You know, I just want to do what you want to do. Is this the right thing? I go, I was offered this offer. I'm going like, what do I say? <laughs> so I said, what do I say? And he's, I just knew at that moment it was the right thing to do. So uh, it became a positive thing uh, for me. Um, but, you know, the Christmas was always associated with despair and disappointment and emptiness. I don't like Christmas. So then as the years went by, I had to find some good arguments for why I didn't like Christmas, because it's a bit bar humbug, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, it's obvious, isn't it, that Jesus clearly wasn't born on Christmas Day. Everybody knows that, don't they? Do you believe Jesus was born on Christmas Day? Thank you. <laughs> There's actually no evidence that he actually was born on Christmas Day. Sorry to debunk the myth for you. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> There's lots of this, lots of other ways of times, but you know, clearly the early church attached Christmas as a celebration to a pagan feast called Saturnalia, which takes place around about the shortest day of the year, and it's all about the change of the seasons the darkness turning to light. So it felt like a good thing for the early church to do it. Um, but, you know, that was my argument. It's quite clear Jesus wasn't born on Christmas Day. Bar humbug. <laughs> I don't like all the materialism. I don't know about you guys, but I, get re I really struggle with the excess and the alcohol and the food. Um, and, you know, I just, it's, um, it just seems to me to be a marketing opportunity for commercialism <laughs> Christmas. Um, and in my work as a GP now, I see lots of people in the new, new Year who are depressed and fed up because Christmas has been a letdown. <laughs> or they've just been lonely and disappointed because you know, their families haven't been in touch or they haven't been in contact with people. Or they've lost people in the year before and it's an empty time. It's a really painful time of the year. And in fact, lawyers call the first Monday after Christmas, after New Year, they call it Black Monday because so many people contact them to start divorces. Yeah, it's not really it's, it's very sad. Um, you know, and, and, and my surgery is mirrored by the number of people who come in with depression at that time of year. I mean, maybe it's the dark nights and things, the sort of sad feeling that we go, but I don't like Christmas. <laughs> and what about all the sentimentality? Um, you know, go on to the next slide, uh, Tom. The, the, you know, there's so much tat and gaudiness and secular nonsense, nonsense, I'm going to go one more, that I really just want to go and lie down in a dark room. <laughs> so, you know, what, what is it with all these disembodied angels uh, and this roofless stable sanitized with nice, white, clean-looking parents and shepherds and this the, you know, Christ child, you know, with a nice papal blessing, even the hands are set out to be a kind of sanitized. And this rock star, what's that about? It just looks too perfect for me. Yeah, I, don't, I, don't, I just feel like 
<laughs> We've got the story all wrong. So I'm, you know, that's why I don't like Christmas. And here am I, because <laughs> the rotor put me here, <laughs> preaching about Christmas. <laughs> A thrill of hope. What is that about? Not <laughs> <Our> next year. <laughs> so, so, yeah, isn't it the wrong story? <clears throat> to me, it is. Um, so, the question I've been sort of struggling with over the recent weeks, just preparing and thinking about this, is what is the right story? What exactly is the story of Christmas actually all about? If you strip back all the sentimentality and overlaid commercialism and excess. Um, so, you know, before I get to the answer, I just want to pray, um, and then we'll, we'll dig into this. <laughs> Lord, will you help us to see through all the add-ons that we've got used to as we plan for, and for many of us look forward to during this Christmas? Would you help us to get this story right, and see what it actually means to our lives, how the impact of you, God with us, can change our lives and bring healing and life. Would you speak to us today, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. So there are four gospel stories in the Bible, if you're familiar with them. But only two of them actually tell us anything about the birth of Jesus. So two don't, two do. Uh, Luke's gospel, for instance, was written for an audience that was primarily non-Jewish. You remember that all this happened in the first century yeah, Jesus was from a Jewish background. Most of the people that uh, came in touch with the good news or came in touch with Jesus were actually uh, Jewish people. And Luke's or gospel was written for an audience that was not for Jew, that were not Jewish. <laughs> so, for instance, Luke takes this family line in the genealogy in the beginning of Luke takes it all the way back to Adam because he wants us to realise that we're all included in that story. But Matthew was writing for Jewish people who knew the Hebrew scriptures and stories. And so his genealogy in Matthew chapter 1 goes back to the founding father of the Jewish faith, a guy called Abraham. So if you've got a Bible and you want to follow along, Matthew chapter 1 and 2, dipping in and out of. Now, I don't know whether you're familiar with uh, something called the Bible Project, but the Bible Project is a charity uh, it's a social enterprise in, in America that provides lots of resources to help people understand the Bible in lots of different languages. So if you speak Portuguese, they've <laughs> got it in Portuguese as well. Um, but so you, I, I'm not going to play anything, but this is just a, an overview of Matthew. You can look at it. Um, and I, I'd really recommend going online and looking at these, these uh, resources because it helps you to understand how the Bible is set up. So one of the common phrases in the book of Matthew is this phrase, it says, this was to fulfill. So Matthew 1, 22 to 23, if you're in your Bible, says this, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And that prophecy is in the book of Isaiah. And if you read the Old Testament, there are lots of different places that predict or prophesy the coming of the Messiah. 
the anointed one who would come to rescue Israel. Matthew was trying to point out to his Jewish audience that Jesus was the fulfillment of all these prophecies. So Matthew is keen to present Jesus as Messiah, the anointed one that the Jewish people were looking for. He's trying to indicate that Jesus uh, is a new king from the line of King David, <coughs> who was like the best king in the Jewish history. And that's why his genealogy goes back through David to Abraham. And he also demonstrates that Jesus is understood to be God come to be with his people, or God with us. But Matthew, because he was Jewish, if you, if you spoke to any Jewish person, even today, and said, who's the greatest person who ever lived? Anybody got any ideas who they say? Moses, yeah, it'd be Moses. They think Moses was the greatest person to ever live, that he was the saviour who rescued them from uh, Egypt, took them through the Red Sea, taught them and gave, gave them laws to live by. So what we get is Matthew cleverly linking episodes uh, in Jesus' life to stories about Moses. Don't know whether you've ever seen that, but Jesus comes out of Egypt in the story. That links back to Moses bringing people out of Egypt, bringing them people out of slavery. Jesus' baptism represents the passing through the waters of the Red Sea. His time in the wilderness, you remember after he was baptised, he, he went out into the wilderness. His time in the wilderness represents, or is linked back to the 40 years that the Israelites spent in the wilderness. And then the Sermon on the Mount, which comes on quite soon after that bit of the story, the, the, the uh, baptism and the wilderness experience. The Sermon on the Mount represents Moses receiving the law on Mount Sinai. So, Matthew is linking back to the Old Testament all the time. And he links back to the prophets, the bit of the Old Testament called the prophets. So Matthew 2, if you look at the Bible, 4 to 6, they're not on the screen, and there's a reason for that. Matthew 2, 4 to 6 says this, When Herod had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, it is written. This is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will, become, will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So, uh, if you go on to the next slide, sorry. Uh, <laughs> so, what we've got in Matthew, in, in Matthew 2 is a, a representation from this prophet called Micah. And the prophet Micah was speaking 700 or more years before Christ. And he warned of exile for Israel, which actually happened between 722 BC and 586 BC. And so he prophesied that there'd be judgment for Israel, but he also prophesied there was hope as Israel would be restored. And there's hope in the message he prophesied um, that a righteous king born in Bethlehem will rule them as a shepherd. Last week we heard from Martin about the, the Magi, the, the, the three kings. Um, I haven't got a t-shirt for this one on today, but I, I have to say I do have Christmas socks on. <laughs> so uh, I thought I'd just kind of overcome this bar humbugness in me. Um, but after the, after the Magi had visited Joseph, 
his father had a dream warning him to leave Bethlehem and travel to Egypt. So Matthew 2, 13 to 15 says this. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. So then we get on to Hosea, another prophet in the Old Testament who says this, when Israel was a child, I loved him and out of Egypt I called my son. That's linking the prophecy to Jesus' life. And we can see another parallel with Moses in the story because Jesus' life is threatened by evil, despotic ruler, Herod. And if you go back to Moses' story, the Pharaoh at the time decided that the Hebrews were getting too many and they had to be, what they had to kill all the, all the children under two. And of course Moses was saved by his sister, putting him in the Moses basket, whatever it's called. So, <clears throat> there's a couple more things to talk about the links of the prophecy, but I want to talk a little bit about Joseph for a minute. Um, who was recognised as Jesus' earthly father. We don't know a lot about him. Anybody tell me anything you know about him? We don't know he was old. He was a carpenter. Um, it says in the genealogy that he was from the line of David. Um, and it says some things about, the, about him that you know, are quite interesting. As Matthew 1.19 says, because Jacob, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, or you could say a righteous man, he did not want to expose her to public disgrace. And he had in his mind to divorce her, that's Mary, quietly. So we can see that he was, he was wanting to be honourable and kind. Because actually, Mary could have been stoned to death, but Joseph, Joseph didn't want that. So what we find is that Joseph was a righteous and honourable man, but we also see him as somebody who was willing to listen to God. Now, I don't know how you find listening to God, um, but for some of us, we hear God speaking to us through dreams, and Joseph was one of those. So Matthew 1, chapter 1, 20 to 21, verse 20 to 21, Joseph says this, the Bible says this, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. For he, she, will, she will bear your son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And then again in Matthew chapter 2, 13. And when they had departed... Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared, this is after the Magi had departed, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is to, about to search for the child to destroy him. And then in verse 19 to 20 of chapter 2, it says this, But when Herod had died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go back to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. 
And what we find with Joseph is he wasn't just hearing dreams, hearing God in dreams, he actually did what the angel told him to do. So it says this, when, when Joseph woke from sleep he, sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not, until she had given birth to a son, and he called, he called his name Jesus. And again, and he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and went to the land of Israel. So we don't know much more about Joseph. Um, there are references uh, in the Bible about Jesus having at least four brothers and more than one sister. So you can imagine that Jesus was probably one of a family of children of seven children or more. Um, we know that uh, Luke says that his parents took him to the temple when he was age 12, because that's the story about him being left behind in the temple. But by the time Jesus starts his ministry, there's no further mention of Joseph. And many people actually believe that he died young, leaving an orphan family, leaving Mary as a single mother, bringing up several children on her own. I'm going to come back to that in a bit, but before I do, there's one other thing about Joseph that we can see from Matthew's early account, account of Jesus' early life. Matthew 2, 21 to 22, he's going back to the land of Israel and he hears that Archelaus was reigning in, over Judea in place of his father, Herod. And it says, he was afraid to go there. Being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. So he showed some flexibility and wisdom in how he responded to God's calling on his life. Um, he's obeyed, he's returned to Israel, but on hearing that Herod's successor, Archelaus, who had had an even worse reputation for violence than his father, when he hears that he's king, he, he shows flexibility, avoids the area around Jerusalem and Bethlehem, diverts on a circuitous route, and travels on to the area of Galilee, some distance away. So he shows wisdom in the choices he made for his family. So they end up in a little town called Nazareth. And um, why Nazareth? It's quite interesting that there is no mention of Nazareth in the Old Testament. <coughs> there is no mention of Nazareth in any contemporary documents you know, there are people who write about there were 240 towns in Galilee and they named 45 of them, but Nazareth isn't one of them. Um, the Messiah, as we know, was supposed to come from Bethlehem. So why Nazareth? Well, we know the Messiah did come from Bethlehem because that's where Jesus was born, because of the census. But why Nazareth? Well, we also know that from Luke's Gospel that actually Mary, that the angel appeared to Mary in Nazareth. So they, I guess, Joseph and Mary were living in that area before Jesus was conceived. But there's something else about Nazareth. Um, if, you, if you look further on in John's Gospel, there's a story where Philip says to his friend Nathaniel, come and meet this man. We found the one who's going to be the Messiah. 
He's from Nazareth. And Nathaniel says, Nazareth? Can any good come out of Nazareth? It didn't have a great reputation. And some people have said, thought, yeah, actually it's like it's called Nowhereville. So it's not, it's Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus of Nowhere. Jesus of Irrelevance. It says in the Old Testament, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, from his roots, a branch will bear fruit. And this is the prophecy that Matthew's trying to link back to, because the word for shoot or branch is, in Hebrew, is netzer. And so, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, from his root a branch will bear fruit. Netzereth, Nazareth. And they think the name it became from that. So, who am I? Nazareth didn't have a great reputation, wasn't well known as a town, probably was big enough to have a synagogue, because that's where Jesus, the, the, the people of Nazareth in his ministry time, tried to throw him off the, off the hill. We know it's on, on a hill. But you can imagine. Joseph and Mary travelling back to Nazareth with this baby, and everybody knew them, because everybody did in those days. And can you imagine that they probably thought, ah, here's Joseph with his, you know, his missus, you know, baby born out of wedlock, you know, they're not really quite with it. They're not really acceptable people. I don't even, I wonder whether perhaps Joseph struggled to find work because of the discrimination his family would have had. So I suspect, and particularly as Joseph probably died young, leaving an orphaned family with six children younger than Jesus, that actually um, they were a poor family. In fact, we know that even when Mary and Joseph took Jesus to the temple, they bought two doves to make us the offering, whereas they should have bought a lamb. If they'd been wealthy, they'd have bought a lamb. So, we've looked at how Matthew has linked the story of Jesus' early life to the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, as we know. Matthew has presented him as a king in the line of David. He's presented him as an offering, sorry, as, a, as um, an anointed one, the Messiah, which means anointed one. As If you didn't know this, Christ, the name Christ means anointed one. He's portrayed Jesus as a new Moses, leading Israel out of, of Egypt, out of slavery, um, through the baptism in the Red Sea, wandering in the wilderness, giving and receiving the law on a mountain. And he presents him as God with us, Emmanuel. So where am I going with this? Have I got your attention? Because, as I've said, I don't really like Christmas and the sentimentality, sentimentality and the excess and the commercialism. And I get stressed by all the kind of secular overlay and some of the, you know, happy, happy winterval, you know, the kind of slightly occult things that, that go for Christmas in our world. So to me, it all seems like the wrong story. I get frustrated. And then I feel guilty because I've like the Grinch who stole Christmas uh, and I'm crabby about it all. So but maybe for the first time I've had to challenge myself, my own thinking, because actually my 
what, the reason I don't like Christmas is emotional. When I think about it, the right story is really important. And, and if, this, if, you don't, if you forget everything I said this morning, I want you to take home this bit, okay? So concentrate. Because <laughs> I think the right story is the unexpected, upside-down way that God has a habit of doing things. If you were to plan, if, you, if I said to you, plan out a plan for a saviour to come to the world, I bet you'd think he'd be in a prominent family, wealthy, lots of influence, lots of power. He could get things done then, couldn't he? You know, you might think uh, he'd be Boris Johnson. <laughs> or um, Joe Swinson. I don't know. Or Jeremy Corbyn. Oh. <laughs> I know, I don't want to elevate the... Uh, so forget that bit, forget that bit. <laughs> Remember this bit, this is, the, this is the right story. God does things in an upside, upside down way. He wouldn't be like the rock star picture we had up earlier. Uh, perfect in every way. Because that's not the way God does things. The right story is prophesied it is, is rooted in prophecies in the Old Testament to describe Jesus as a suffering servant. Look at these verses from Isaiah chapter 53. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely, he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. <coughs> We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So this man of sorrows, acquainted with grief and suffering, is really not the right sort of saviour for the world, is he? At least that's what we think, when we look at it from our perspective. But God sees it differently. He chooses nowhereville to bring up his son. He chooses a humble carpenter and a young woman to bring him up. This is conjecture, but I even wonder whether Jesus had some physical deformity that made people go like, Ooh, I'm not sure, don't want to look at him because of that prophecy. We've no idea. But did he, you know, was, he, was he so unsightly that people turned away from him? that actually when he ministered, the power of God's love came through because it was so different and despite his, his own weaknesses and frailty. Isaiah 42 says this, 14, verse 14, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. I wonder. And then chapter 53, verse 2 says this, For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty. He wasn't a rock star. 
No formal majesty that we should look to, and no beauty that we should desire him. And I think this is the message of the good news. Jesus was God himself, a man who understands the brokenness of our world. A man, a man who came in the midst of the mess. A man who understood why people are broken and hurting and lost. He comes to those who are broken, those who are abused, those who are struggling, those who are anxious, depressed, really struggling to get through. He's not readily found by those who, are, who think they have it all, those who are proud in their hearts. So this Jesus, this Jesus who we come and worship is not a rock star. He comes to the broken. I, th I think, you know, actually when we have a heart for those who are broken and those who are struggling, then we stand in his favour because that's his heart for them. You know, we said earlier, you know, show me your heart and lead me to those around me. Even Mary, was, I think Mary was the first person to recognise this. In Luke 1, it says this, Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour. <clears throat> For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. But behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. And listen to this. He has exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. <coughs> He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. So this is the right story. Not the kind of sanitised Christmas card stuff that we see. Not the, the glitzy Santa stuff. This, that's not the right Chris, that's not the right story. This is the right story. He's not the Jesus Christ superstar beloved of the rich and the powerful and the wealthy. He's not the Jesus adopted sometimes by politicians and religious leaders. But he's the Jesus of nowhere. The Jesus considered to be illegitimate. The Jesus brought up as the oldest child in an orphaned family. The Jesus looked down on and rejected. The Jesus who knew what it was to associate with the poor, the tax collectors, the prostitutes. The Jesus broken, bruised, tortured, mocked and crucified for our sins. And the Jesus who understands our struggles and pain. This is the Jesus who turns away those who are too proud to accept him. When I struggled like that first Christmas that I got fed up with Christmas, when I struggled, actually what God was doing in me was making me understand my dependence on him. 
making me understand I didn't have anything to be proud of in my life. <coughs> this Jesus accepts those who humble themselves and come before him as the one who so loved the world that he gave his life for my sins and for yours. Emmanuel, God with us. So, I'm done. Now, we're going to pray for a moment, so if you're able to, uh, please stand.